Please join me, if you would, back in Romans 7. Now, for some of you, this may be some newer material as far as walking through in some detail Romans chapter 7. Uh, some of you, I know this is review. And again, uh, I, don't, I don't intend to do this, but I think Romans 6 through 8 is, is such a critical passage I don't think it would hurt to go through that at least quickly uh, once every year. Like I said, I don't currently plan to do that. There's plenty of other places to go. Uh, But there's many other passages that deal with the topic of sanctification or Christian growth. But uh, this one sets the stage so powerfully and sets up some of the major pillars that I feel is just utterly critical. Some of you have heard me mention that uh, some of you men, I gave that book by uh, Lewis Berry Schaefer, and I don't agree with every jot and tittle, but for the most part, I appreciate that brother's writing and especially the, the spirit behind it. And uh, one thing that struck uh, stuck out to me, which is why I've mentioned it multiple times, uh, when he began a seminary, he was teaching uh, doctorate-level students. Every single year, he would spend an entire week at the beginning of the year preaching through the necessity of walking in the Spirit and a close fellowship with God. And he would do that every year for an entire week with these students because he wanted them impressed in their mind. If you don't get that right, all you're going to get here is a big head. Well, obviously we have a different topic before us here in Romans 7, but if we don't understand the theology of the indwelling flesh, (laughs) what's one of the major axioms of warfare? Know the enemy. I wonder if every set of eyeballs sitting here this morning realizes that within you is a nature that is every bit as corrupt as the communist, socialist people trying to take over the country. That in you is a nature so seductive and so powerful that yielding to it will destroy you without the devil's help at all. It's that critical. And if we're going to have any kind of sustained victory over daily sin, we better know the enemy. It's one thing to be shocked about what goes on out there. That's that's bad enough. But many of you know the experience as a Christian. You're shocked by what comes out of here. And many a believer I've talked to over the years, that rattles them so bad it almost puts them into despondency because they don't understand how evil the nature that they still have is. They can fall victim to it unwittingly. The sum total of a lot of what passes as Christian teaching is simply do right and you'll be happy. And uh, when you have these seasons of struggle, just add more activity. Now, I'm all for zeal for the Lord and serving Him, but more activity doesn't take care of where we're wrong theologically and where we might be handling sin wrongly. That doesn't, one doesn't fix the other. A sincere Christian who desires to worship God in spirit and in truth eventually finds that that's easier said than done. You know, it's one thing to talk about the need to gain victory over our inward nature, but it's quite another matter to know the pathway to that victory and bring others along with us. Again, you parents, I've said this many times, I'll keep hammering it. This is one of the major sections that's so critical to understand discipling your own children, particularly as they head into the teenage years. You've got to help them come to grips with the evil nature within. You've got to come alongside and help them war that, not fight them, but fight alongside them. It's so huge. Again, Romans 6, the central heart burden was how can I avoid doing evil when I still possess a sin nature? So it was more of, in Romans 6, how not to do bad. But Romans 7 is presenting a deeper issue. How to do good. 
in light of the shocking wickedness of this nature of mine, which follows me even to the door of sacrifice. And uh, we get the sense from Paul's tone and vocabulary that the struggle in chapter 6 produced a far greater degree of crisis for him. Or in the, the struggle in chapter 7 produced a far greater crisis than that of chapter 6. I mean, think about it. Let's say you have trouble with wrong speech. And you determine you're just not going to say anything. Well, how about you jump ahead and go, how do I not just stop saying wrong things? How do I have life and edification and grace come out of my mouth? How can I do positive good in spite of this nature that's still fighting me from within? Now, let me address the theological elephant in the room if you're familiar with writings on Romans 7. The big question always has to come up. Is Paul speaking as a saved man or a lost man in Romans 7? And part of that is it depends which part you're talking about because there is some of each. But let me explain why I say that. There are some, particularly the staunch Arminian position, uh, which teaches eradication of the sin nature, which teaches entire sanctification. In other words, that you can reach a plateau on this earth where you can say you're sinless. And have you ever known any sinless people? Uh, I have known some dear, sincere people who would look you in the face and say, I have not sinned in 13 years. And they were as serious as anything on that. But to get to that position, you have to do something with passages like Romans 7 or 1 John 1. If we confess our sins, well, who's we? Obviously, in the context there, it's talking about Christians. But they would say, oh, no, it's talking about a lost man. And the gymnastics they have to do to try to prove that is a scary thing indeed. Why is that important? If we take the position that Paul's a lost man in the entirety of Romans 7 then we're robbed of one of the most priceless passages on dealing with the enemy within. Then Paul's describing a battle that if you're a Christian, you shouldn't even have. And I would say dogmatically, for the latter half of Romans 7, Paul is absolutely a saved man. There's no question about that. And the three major proofs, I'm probably not going to take the time to go through them in detail, but one is the verb tenses. You can see the shift in tenses in, in verse 14, and you can trace those verbs through. And it goes from past tense to present tense there for the rest of the chapter. When he says, I am carnal, he doesn't say I was. I am. The same Paul that said later on, I am the chief of sinners. As a saved man, as an apostle who'd seen multitudes come to Christ, he still knew in and of himself he was shockingly depraved. Paul also makes some statements later, later in the chapter, such as verse 22, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. A lost man cannot say that. A lost man does not delight in the law of God after the inward man. The lost man hates the word of God, at least where it nails him to the wall. And then thirdly, where it fits in the progression of the teaching of Romans. Romans is a very systematic in its layout. And the topic in chapter 6 to 8 is Christian growth. It's sanctification. It is not salvation. That was back in chapters 1 through 5. So it's critical to understand that. So section 1 through verses 1 through 6 we talked about last week is general truth related to all believers that positionally we are dead to the law. And then Paul goes into personal experience. I'll tell you, the longer I live as a believer, the more I thank God. And of all men he used to pen this chapter, he picked Paul. I, do you really believe Paul had the same nature you do? Later on, we'll be there eventually in James when he reminds us Elijah is a man of like passions with us. You mean Elijah had a sin nature? You got it. 
And the Holy Spirit does this on purpose, I think, to dispel any myth of Christian superheroes. Of Paul attaining or maybe being given some kind of plateau where he didn't have the warfare you and I have. He didn't wake up feeling unspiritual. He didn't have times where he knew what was right and everything in him was, was, didn't want to do it. No, Paul absolutely fought that as this chapter lays out. Now that second section, verses 7 to 13, Paul goes into his lost days as a Pharisee. And again, verses 7 to 13, the tenses are all past tense and the verbs, and those are inspired. He was talking about back then. And let me point out, this is the most deeply personal of Paul's writings. Verses 7 to 25, the pronouns I, me, my, and myself appear 47 times. 47 times Paul mentions himself in the latter two-thirds of this chapter, and he's not painting a flattering picture. He's telling us about the war within. Now, verses 7 to 13, Paul was talking about his lost days as a Pharisee, how the law wreaked utter havoc upon the inner chambers of his mind. And you can just imagine uh, Paul's controversy with the law as he's claiming to obey it meticulously. Remember, this is the golden boy of Phariseeism. He would have been a great encouragement to those who knew themselves and were struggling with the knowledge that they were evil intrinsically. And his fellow Pharisees would look at Paul and they would think, ah, oh, here's a guy that's got it all together. He gives me hope through the law. He's attained some plateau. Just look at him. And all the while, Paul is standing as this icon of morality. His voice of conscience is just screaming within. And I think it reached its apex at the martyrdom of Stephen, a man who had attained practical righteousness. And here's Paul, couldn't even love his neighbor as himself. And Stephen's dying words display the supernatural love of Christ. And then, of course, that third section, which we won't get to today, verses 14 to 25, they go into the present tense. He's talking about what is. Uh, so for this morning, we're flashing back to Paul's inward turmoil that he experienced as a so-called law-abiding Pharisee. And again, let me explain the purpose for him bringing this up. This passage isn't primarily evangelistic. I mean, uh, much of what we're going to say today is definitely evangelistic truth. But he's painting this picture of the flesh before and after salvation for a very, very good reason. To show us the nature of the enemy within. Now, look how verse, chapter 7 starts. In chapter 7, I'm sorry, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Remember ten times in the book of Romans, the phrase God forbid or meganoita in the Greek appears. The strongest possible denunciation of a false premise. And every single time Paul's issuing a preemptive strike, he asks the question in response to some theology he's just taught. And he's asking a question that he knows mankind will ask when they're confronted with these things. And that these questions are a product of human logic and reason. It's like each time he takes it and just shatters it in pieces like Moses did with the tables at Mount Sinai. Let me just review some of the questions. I'm paraphrasing these, but this is, this is essentially what they were. Chapter 3, verse 3 Here's the paraphrased question. Since the Jews were designated the chosen people of God, doesn't the fact that so many of them reject Him, doesn't that discredit His faithfulness? In other words, if God has said this people group is His chosen people, and I don't know the percentage, but upper 90 percentile has utterly rejected Him and gone 
to eternal condemnation. And so the question man might ask is, if those are his chosen people and the vast majority turn their back on him, doesn't that call into question how faithful God is? And Paul, of course, is saying no. God's not running for public office. I mean, let's say nobody came to Christ. It'd be horrible and it won't happen because millions have. If nobody came to Christ, would that make God unfaithful? No, it wouldn't. Chapter 3, verse 5, since our natural unrighteousness makes God's righteousness shine all the more, isn't he wrong to judge us since we're just making him look better? That's, the, that, that's essentially what's being asked. <laughs> if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? If my sin just makes God look better, how can he judge me? Well, because God's unflinchingly righteous, that's why. He's just and He cannot change. Beginning of chapter 6, the question essentially was, since the power of sin has been demolished and grace now reigns in its place in the life of a Christian, can't we just enjoy some sinfulness? I mean, if we can be forgiven and if grace is reigning and it's been, sin's been conquered, don't I have a surplus of sins I can commit just because I can? Can't I enjoy it a bit? And Paul's saying, no. You're dead to sin. Why would you want to go back to that? As though sin can provide something for you that God can't. Something good. And again, these questions demonstrate divine inspiration. They just It amazes me walking through how they just dissect the human mind and know in advance what's going to be asked. And of course, I think it's a warning to us that our fleshly tendency, even presenting with solid truth, is still to come up with wrong conclusions if we're not careful. That's why we need to have our mind continually renewed by the Scriptures, but also ask questions of the text. Who's being spoken to? What's being said? What's the principles here? What does this show me about the character of God? What do other passages say on this topic? I think generally the deeper a particular truth is, the more danger there is of letting our fallen reason distort the revelation of God. That's very true. Think of uh, sovereignty and free will. There's no end to the logical extensions of that. I read a real beauty last night. Some guy who's a universalist, meaning he thinks everybody will be saved in the end. And his whole premise of the article was that belief in eternal hell is completely opposed and cannot dwell side by side with actually loving your neighbor. And he actually made the statement, it's impossible to truly love people and believe in eternal hell. Says who? Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus love his neighbor? Did Jesus believe in hell? He preached on it twice as much as he preached on heaven. So that's the type of logical extension Paul's trying to keep us from. Uh, some one side says, well, if God chooses, let's not evangelize. Well, the problem is that flies in the face of Scripture. Another side says, well, God's election means nothing. God must have just picked those who He knew were smart enough to believe. That's a problem too. It's interesting in Romans 9, verses 19 and 20, the answer presented there by the Holy Spirit is essentially, who do you think you are? <laughs> in other words, there's mysteries there that God's not going to unravel for us on this, in this life if He ever does. But all right, the question here, though, it's an odd question, maybe. But if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Is the law sin? In other words, the law of Moses, was that itself a bad thing? I mean, consider what's been discussed just in the last two chapters. 
Our death to sin and our death to the law occurred simultaneously on the same old rugged cross. And if you back up a little bit in verses 5 and 6, in our old life, when the sinful flesh teamed up with the law of Moses or law principle, the result was fruit unto death. So he's just taught that. And now the logical question might be, if sin dwelling within me teamed up with the law and produced bad things, then obviously both of those things must be bad. Sin and the law must be co-conspirators against me. Obviously there's major problems with the law. I mean, does anybody really think that way? I think many do. And there's vast segments of professing Christianity that think that way about New Testament, New Testament commands, let alone the Old. I remember in Alaska years ago when they were talking about legalizing pot, which is one of the dumbest things a place can do, by the way. One of the justifications. Well, if we get rid of the marijuana laws, we'll have less criminals because there'll be one less law to break. Somebody was serious about that. Now, what's the insinuation? The problem is the law. What is, it, what is a huge section of our country thinking right now? The problem's the police. The problem's the jail. If we get rid of the police and the jail, we won't have any criminals at all. In fact, if we make everything legal, nobody, nobody will be in law trouble. Won't that be a utopia? Can I move to the moon if that's the case? But that's the same rationale. Of course, once again, though, Paul's answer is God forbid. I think we'd all agree the Old Testament law is not the rule of life for the New Testament Christian, and we're thankful to be under grace. But I wonder, do we realize what a monstrous conclusion it is to state that the law of Moses itself is flawed or immoral or wrong? <laughs> God can't give inferior gifts. The Mosaic law was not something God just jumbled together while He was thinking of a better plan. It wasn't a temporary stopgap measure. God doesn't operate that way. Now it's true, the law is called a yoke of bondage. It's replaced by a better covenant. There's many other statements like that in the New Testament, but... It's not that the law was simple or, or sinful, but the law was intended to be temporary. The law was intended to be preparatory. I guess you could think of it this way. The law was the best way for that time in human history to accomplish the purposes of God. It was the best way to instruct His people about His holy character and justice. It was the best way to instruct and prepare the entire world regarding substitutionary atonement for sin. I mean, friends, think about it. When John the Baptist made, I love those words. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. But I tell you, those words are meaningless without centuries of law preparation. To where when he said that to his Jewish audience, anyone who was spiritually alert would have picked it up and went, that's it. The fulfillment of all the sacrifices. That's what they've all been pointing to. It was the best way to set Israel's expectations of a Messiah on a lamb that was slain rather than the conquering military hero they desired. So the law was kind of like the ministry of John the Baptist. It accomplished a temporary purpose so that Christ might be magnified when it was replaced. Now Paul goes into, though, his experience when the law was applied to his life when he was still in his lost days. Now inside this whited sepulcher, was the hidden stench of death and decay. And the same is true for every fallen sinner that's confronted with the legal truth of God. Notice what it does also in verse 7. He says, Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. In other words, one thing the law did was plainly define and reveal sin. 
I mean, he knew sin in the sense of committing it, just like everybody does. But he wasn't cut to the heart until he heard sin specifically defined. He gives one example. I hadn't known lust except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. So he's saying what the law did was nail me to the wall specifically. So it's one thing in general terms. You hear it all the time. I'm not perfect. Everybody sins. But when somebody goes from that to concrete definition of what sin is and how offensive it is to God. That's a whole nother matter. I mean, often the most hardened reprobate will nod his head in agreement. It's interesting, Paul says in 1 Timothy, again, we're not going to turn there for sake of time, but chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. He says there, the law was not made for a righteous man, but for the ungodly and for sinners. And then he goes on to give a list. What's he saying? He's saying these things. A righteous man who, who's subject to the Scriptures. He's led by the Spirit and, and the Word of God, but somebody who doesn't know God... The law serves as a definition of sin for him to point him to Christ. That's why Galatians calls the law a schoolmaster. It gives concrete examples of what constitutes rebellion against a living God. And boys, there are plain teaching needed today as there always has been. Have you ever been sitting in your living room and the air is clean, right? And then... Here comes this ray of sun through. And what do you see in the ray of sun? You see a whole bunch of goobers floating in there, and they make you want to cough. And then comes one of your kids, and they do this on the couch. Boy, that nasty sunlight, it's making it awful dusty in here. That's what the law does. It shines into black hearts to think the air is nice and clean and makes them start choking on the dust. Men may love morality and religion, but by nature they hate the light that plainly identifies and exposes their individual wickedness. Now, one of the more famous sermons ever preached was Grace Abounding, the Chief of Sinners by John Bunyan. Interesting enough, that message was really, it's a book of his now, but it was preached as a sermon at the Bedford Jail in England. And here's Bunyan standing between those gathered outside and those gathered in the jail, and he's preaching to both. And he's giving his personal testimony of salvation. But here's the jailer back there. And he's convinced it's all about him. And as Bunyan's preaching, he's growing more and more angry. And he's thinking to himself, how dare he shame me like that? I've given him the freedom to preach and to teach all these people. How dare he make a mockery? How dare he get up there and speak about me like that? How dare he define my life like that? And Bunyan wasn't even talking about him. By the way, the man was converted after that. <laughs> but you see, he went from sin in a general sense to I am the wretch that needs saving. So nobody can really be truly convicted of sin until they know something of who God is and what He expects of them. But look at verse 8. Secondly, Paul's sinful nature actually rose up in response to the law. In fact, he says, but sin, at the beginning of verse 8. He says the same thing in verse 9, verse 11, verse 13. He's personifying sin. He's giving it a personality. But as a result of hearing the demands of a holy God, he actually, listen to this, he actually became a worse person. Now, 
See that verse 8? But sin, taking occasion by the commandment. In other words, sin grabbed hold of the commands of God and wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. That means a, a longing for that which is forbidden. He says, without the law, sin was dead. In other words, the sinful nature, when it thinks it reigns supreme and has neutralized all other threats to its dominion, it will often appear dormant and refined and restrained and even religious. I remember some years ago, we were at the zoo over in Boise. And oh, it's a classic picture. It would have gone viral if I was into posting stuff online. It's a picture of one of our kids just ah, bawling. And right behind him is, is the glass of the lion's cage. And there's a lion laying way back in the background. And there's a gigantic muddy paw print right across the glass. So this particular child had fallen and hurt themselves. And they were still whimpering a little when we got to the lion exhibit. And the lion's laying way back there. And he didn't like the crying. And he got up and he marched over and he stuck his face in the glass and he roared and he smacked the glass. And then he walked off and laid back down. And I'll tell you, that child was traumatized. You ever see a picture of a lion laying shady under a tree? Why is he doing that? Because he thinks he's got everything under control. Challenge his dominion. Go grab that mane and start tearing it out of his face. Kick him in the head. Start yelling at him. Go take his food and see what he does. Well, king of the beasts is going to rise up and tell you who's in charge. And Paul's saying the sin nature can act like that when it's unchallenged. Let me put it this way. When you're not taking steps to grow as a Christian, you're just walking in carnality and It'll almost appear dormant. You start to step forward. You start to ingest the Scriptures. You, you start to fellowship with God's people and that nature's going to rise up and you're going to realize you've still got it. And he's saying, it was like my nature was dormant, but then it came back to life when confronted with the demands of the Scriptures. It revealed it wasn't dead. I mean, that's precisely what happens, by the way, when a lost person, listen, especially one that is religious. You know what kind of people get the most angry when their sin is pinned down? A religious lost person. Here's Mr. Self-Righteous. He pays his taxes. He's a good neighbor. Loans out his car and gives the United Way and he attends whatever self-righteousness church. There's hundreds of them. And he's got himself convinced he's snug and ready for heaven. Well, you take a guy like that and you start to dismantle his self-righteousness and show him what a monstrous wretch he is and he's going to clench his jaw in fury. That's what Paul was like before he was converted. So he says, it wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, a longing for what's forbidden. So as a result of hearing God's prohibitions, God saying, don't do this, Paul found his wicked heart actually woke up from slumber and he's all of a sudden overrun with unbelievably powerful temptations. Let me precurse something to next week. This same nature goes into him with him into the Christian life. That's why this is so critical. I've watched many a newer Christian. They think somehow when they came to Christ, the sin nature was gone. And all of a sudden they go through a season and they're facing monstrous temptations and they begin to hang their head and go, do I even know God at all? Many times, yes, they do. But the problem is they didn't think they had the enemy within still. And it just blindsides them. It's one of the reasons why this passage is so critical. So in other words, the very thing that our sin nature is told not to do, 
instantly becomes our great desire to do. I don't think my dad would mind me sharing this story. We had chickens once growing up. Once. Dad never wanted chickens. You know why he got chickens? Because the homeowner association said you're not allowed to have chickens. All of a sudden, dad wanted chickens. Let's say I put a sign. Let's see you pull up next Sunday. There's a sign out here in the grass. It says, do not spray paint our building or else. How long would our building go without graffiti? You ever study the theology or the, the psychology of outhouses? As some of you know, the national and state parks, they have these concrete cast fancy ones, you know, and they've got the fake shingles and everything. Now, years ago, when you walked into one of those, there was a sign on the back. Some of you may remember what it said. Do not, in big letters, do not throw trash in the outhouse. Well, you know what they say now? Please do not throw trash in the outhouse. It's very hard to remove. Because what did they find? Telling people not to do it made them do it. Now they're appealing to reason and <laughs> compassion. A speed limit sign could say 100, and people would go 107. A friend of mine told the story of a man he knew that stuck a desk out on the street, and he put a sign on it that said, free. Nobody took it for three days. And then he thought he'd try an experiment. He put a sign on that said, desk, $10, and then somebody stole it that night. <laughs> one of the things, one of the evils of, of sin nature, when it's confronted with prohibitions, its knee-jerk reaction is, now I want to do that. And Paul's saying, with God's prohibitions, that's what I found. I thought I was so righteous. And God says, don't lust after that. And I found that I wanted to lust after that. I wanted to eat the forbidden fruit. And again, dealing with the souls of men that are lost, it's very common that when men are grappling with their inability to change themselves, that they become worse for a while. Because what's happening many times is they're trying to prove to themselves they're righteous. They're trying to prove to themselves they can fix themselves. You hear it expressed, oh, I got to get back in church. Oh, I really got to deal with, oh, I really got to stop this habit. That's not the issue. The issue's down here. You need to come to Christ. But they're going to run to self-fix and they're going to try to take care of it themselves. And many times God's going to back his restraints off and let him become a monster until they come to the point of saying, I can't fix myself. Somebody else has to save me. Now you're ready for the gospel. Now it means something. Think of one preacher. I think I've shared this before, but I've never forgotten it. One of the old, old brethren centuries ago he had a young man staying with him. And he was preaching some evangelistic meetings, not the young man, but the preacher. And he told this young man, he said, you don't have to come at all. That's not a condition of you staying with us. You're welcome to come. We'd love to have you. But you don't have to. The guy came a few nights to the meetings. And this preacher could tell the guy was fighting with himself. And so one of the days he's in his study and this young man bursts in and he's mad. And he says, you guys are so inconsistent. And he said, what do you mean? The guy said, you're talking about all the supernatural change. But you know good and well most people can't do it. And he said to the young man, he said, very well. Why don't you go fix yourself and come talk to me? The guy broke down. He said, I've been trying for three whole days. And he said, exactly. <laughs> Paul says in verse 9, I was alive without the law once. 
It's difficult to say exactly when that was, but in other words, he was self-satisfied. He was somewhat at peace. There were no deep arrows of the Spirit's probing. There was no blinding supernatural light shining in the dungeon of his soul. But with the entrance of the commandments illuminated by the Holy Spirit and the awakening of his conscience, his nature would then surge with new life and energy and the effect was like a kind of death. Peace departed and misery and guilt seized his soul and he found that he's unable to contain the savage beast dwelling within. I was alive without the law once, he says, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Notice this perplexing conclusion in verse 10. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. Imagine a Pharisee saying that. (laughs) The very law that I was preaching to everybody was the path to life. I found that it killed me. That's quite a revelation from a Pharisee. Trained to the feet of Gamaliel, his cardinal message to the sinful masses regarding the law was this do and thou shalt live. Yet the more he drank of that supposed water of life, the more he found it as bitter as the waters of Mara. And what he thought was a pillow to rest his head upon proved to be a chopping block. But you see, his perverse nature still isn't finished. Look at verse 11. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me. And by it slew me. So he says again, sin, his nature, taking occasion by the commandment. In other words, seizing the actual Word of God. And it responded to this ultimatum from heaven by inflaming sinful passions exponentially. And then here it takes the very commands of God and uses them to deceive. Who does that sound like? Satan's the twister of Scripture. The God of the half-truth that causes ruin. Guess what else does that? Your flesh. Your nature. And the chief deception leveled at those who are under conviction of sin and are lost from the joint forces of their own flesh and the devil is to blind their minds in relation to the glorious gospel of Christ at 2 Corinthians 4.4. Over the years, I've come to marvel. Extremely intelligent people who can understand medicine and physics and economics. But when it comes to the truth of the Gospel of Christ, there's this wall of imperception they can't get through. The devil's great work with respect to the souls of men is to make them ignorant of the righteousness that's given to them by Christ. And he can keep them in darkness there if he can. Nothing else matters. So Paul found that even while facing an intolerable weight of guilt and misery, his own nature led him right back to his executioner for help with encouragement to try harder next time. You picture it? And Paul realizes this is killing him within. He can't admit it to anybody. And he knows what he's doing is not working. It's stirring up these inflamed passions within him. But yet, rather than turn his back on his self-righteous system of works, his sin nature takes the law and twists it and tells him, try harder, buckaroo, you got this. Next week's going to be your time to earn God's favor. May I say that's precisely why the fake religion is so attractive in this current world system. Because it's a chain of reaction from the sin nature that will not listen to its own sin nailed to the wall. It doesn't want to hear about a free righteousness given through Jesus Christ alone. It doesn't want to hear about a salvation that completely undercuts all human merits. What would make men reject an offer of salvation full and free that is 100% paid for and all you have to do is humble yourself and take it? Why is that so offensive? 
Because man's sinful heart says, no, I'll do some of it myself. I'll give some money. Even if it's only 1% of my redemption, I'll have something to do with it. And God says, no. Jesus is either 100% Savior or 0% your Savior. And nobody can pick for you. Fake religion is multitudes of pious men in costly robes working feverishly to change the color of the Ethiopian skin or scrub the spots off the leopard. They're trying to affect change from the outside and they can not do it. But look at verse 12. The law is not the problem at all, although it seems to produce bondage, misery, guilt, and death. I mean, here's the answer to the question in verse 7. Is the law sin? Look at verse 12. Wherefore? The law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. The description here should be no surprise, because those attributes don't exist on their own. They're reflections of the character of God that gave both the old and the new covenants. Holy, it's holy. It's pure, it's undefiled, it's set apart as the word spoken by God Himself on Mount Sinai. It's just, it's perfectly righteous in both its claims and penalties, and it's no respecter of persons, and it's good. In and of itself, listen to this, in and of itself, the law is designed to produce happiness and contentment. Now there's a caveat to that, I'm getting there. I mean, you could read Psalm 19, verses 7 to 11. Again, an important cross-reference, but one of the most beautiful descriptions of the law in the Scriptures. The writer there is talking about the Word of God, but he had the law. He didn't have a New Testament at that point. Now that brings us to another seeming paradox, though, in verse 13, and another preemptive question. Was then that which is good made death unto me? You see him grappling with this? If the law is good, then did God take a good thing and turn around and use it in a bad way for my sake? Because it sure feels like it's making me worse. If the law is holy, just, and good, then why does it seem like it's strangling the life out of me? And why is it the law makes me unholy, unjust, and anything but good? Remember back to the sunlight in the living room? Why is it every time that sunlight teams up with my living room, it gets really dusty in here? (laughs) It's not the sunlight. Is the law to blame? And Paul says again, God forbid, no. How many ways of salvation are there? There's actually two. Here's the first one. From birth till grave, you must be utterly flawless according to God's definition in thought, word, and deed without a mistake. How's that going so far? Somebody says, I I can take care of myself. Will you? You know, it's interesting in Revelation 20, by the way, twice it mentions there, the dead were judged according to their works. Why would that be there? Because the person who rejects Christ is basically insisting, I am good enough to save myself. And what that's emphasizing is when he stands before the God of all creation, Keep in mind, at this point, the world's incinerated and everything they live for is gone. And here they are suspended at God's pavilion with all the visible creation destroyed. And it says the books are open. And their life is poured out before God. Everything. 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 
And they're judged according to their works, and those that are at judgment without exception are consigned to the lake of fire because there's none righteous. No, not one. So the reason the law is insufficient is not because of any fault in the law, but because of the wretchedness of the entire human race and their inability to produce supernatural change in and of themselves. Hebrews chapter 8, 7, and 8. Listen to the terminology. For if that first covenant, this is talking about the, the covenant of the law, if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. And you might read that and go, see there, it says the first covenant had a fault. But listen, if the first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second for finding fault with them. Talking about the Jews. He saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. God gave the holy, just, and good old covenant which He knew mankind could not keep to prepare the world for the new covenant which God Himself would keep for us. The law does not make you bad. The law reveals how bad you are. The law itself does not inflame passions. The law reveals how evil of a nature you have that hates God so much it instantly wants to do anything that He says not to. It's God that takes away the heart of stone and gives a heart of flesh. It's God that remembers sins and iniquities no more. It's God who provided the spotless Lamb of Himself for Himself and by Himself. Now, does any good come out of this war between the law and our sin nature? Yes. Look what he says. But sin, the middle of verse 13, that it might appear sinful, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. In other words, the law takes men from the position of, yes, I've done bad things, but yes, I have issues, except yes, I'm having trouble, but it takes men from that and it shines light so brightly into corrupted hearts and it brings us to the place where we abandon any and all hope in our natural selves because we see what our nature does even with something holy, just, and good. Now think about this. If your nature is so wicked, it will take the pure and infallible Word of God and desecrate it like that. What will your nature do with things that are less holy and pure and good. No wonder Jeremiah said, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And in and of ourself, our best works, our most religious works, are trash. Now friends, not only is that the gateway to salvation, But why teach this to Christian people? Friends, because it's a reminder of the nature we still possess as believers. It's critical in our sanctification. Really what this is doing is setting the stage for the crisis of the last section of the chapter, which is where this hits crescendo. And notice the conclusion though in verse 14. For we know, it's universal truth among God's people, we know that the law is spiritual. Pneumatikos. It means it's derived through the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit. It came from Him. The law is an expression of His mind. But notice the change in tense here in verse 14. And now, now we go into Paul's days as a saved man. We know the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. 
sold under sin. So now where he's heading with this is the same nature that just he just described as wreaking havoc in his life as a lost Pharisee. He's bringing right with him into the discussion in his life as a Christian. Unless we get the idea this is given to depress us, let me remind us this is given to lead us to victory. This is given so we understand the nature of this traitor dwelling within and we're prepared to wage a warfare against it properly. I firmly believe that misunderstanding the dual nature that we now possess as children of God causes an unbelievable amount of bondage and guilt and confusion and instability in the Lord's people. I think there's many Christians who have never fully embraced how evil their nature still is. Which, by the way, is why we're told things like make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. See, somebody who denies the evil of their nature isn't wary about feeding the flesh. He can handle it. Somebody who understands this monstrous enemy within is going to know, I feed that beast and it's going to devour me and they're going to be careful in their walk in this barren land that is so filled with corruption. Lord willing, unless the Lord redirects next week, we'll talk about the undiminished traitor within. Let me close by asking... This. I'm not asking anybody to raise their hand or anything. But none of us can escape these kind of questions when we stand before God. Well, maybe you sit here this morning, you say, oh, I'm, I'm a Christian. What did you do to become a Christian? Oh, I, I started going to church. I got baptized, started reading my Bible, and got some things out of my life. Do you know those are satanic answers to that question? Those aren't bad things in and of themselves. If you understand how wretched you are in the sight of God, somebody asks you, how did you become a Christian? Your answer isn't what I did. Unless you're saying, I believed in Christ because I knew I couldn't save myself. I knew if anyone deserved the lake of fire, it was me. I knew I had offended a holy God and I deserved His wrath. And I understood that even if there were no other people alive, that Jesus Christ would have come and He would have died in my place. And I understand that God Himself became a man and He went to that cross so that His wrath and His justice could be fulfilled. And all of my sins were placed on Him. And when He said, it is finished, that included me. And all He asked me to do is take that free gift of salvation that's been paid for completely. I can claim no credits. Can you say that this morning? Or are you one of the millions of Americans that, that is religious and dead? The Lord said, except a man be born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God unless there's a change in your heart that God Himself does. You're doomed. But here's the glorious news. <laughs> Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Remember what He said to that thief on the cross? Here He is in His moment of weakness, suffering and bleeding and dying. And that man who'd been taunting and mocking Him while He was dying next to Him, He turns to Him and He says, Lord, remember me. Come into Your kingdom. And remember the Lord's answer? Today Thou shalt be with Me in paradise. Today can be the day of salvation for you. Nobody else can come to Christ for you but you. And He's willing to save you. But He doesn't save rebels. 
He doesn't save people who raise their fist in defiance and say, I'll save myself. He doesn't save people who think that they're doing some of the work. Do you want life or do you want religion? Come to me, says the Lord, that ye might have life. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand this passage. And uh, you know the needs of every heart here. You, you know believers here that are, Lord, we're in a warfare. We're shocked by what's happening out there, but we're also shocked by our own depravity, and we wish we could just chop it out. But Lord, you have left us to fight this warfare for now, and your ways are perfect. And help us not to give up and crumple and be rattled by it, but to understand the real nature of the battle and to understand uh, how evil these natures are and to understand how to properly wage war. And Father, I pray for those here that I don't know the hearts you do. If there's one or more here that or do you know they're dead in sin? There's never been a real understanding of the gospel. There's never been a real heart change that's been supernatural. They've morphed into religion, but they've never been born again. Father, I pray you might open their eyes to see the difference between the two. I pray you might take your law as a schoolmaster and for their own good, utterly dismantle their self-righteousness that they might come running to Christ as their only hope. But what a glorious hope. We thank You, Lord, we have a risen Savior that's willing to save and willing to save any. In Jesus' name, Amen.